going to be in the book of Ruth. We're going to start the book of Ruth, uh, starting with chapter 1. Well, the last time we finished up the book of Judges, which you could see sadness and sorrow because really a, because of a repeated pattern of sinful behavior. And tonight we're going to see the book of Ruth, which the first chapter starts out a little bit rough, but it has really quite the fairy tale ending. Um, a little bit of a background. It's a story of love and redemption and the foreshadowing of the Messiah set against the bleak days of the judges. So it's interesting. We finished the judges, but Ruth is set somewhere in the time of the judges. Ruth is a, a Moabitess, which means she was a pagan woman, uh, but she became a woman of faith in the God of Israel, the true God. And ultimately, she was rewarded with being in the bloodline of the Messiah. The word Ruth, or the name Ruth, is a Hebrew word, which means friendship or association. Uh, that may have been the Jewish version of her Moabite name, or it could have been the new name given to her by her new Jewish family. And it's interesting as we look in the Bible, whether it's Peter or Paul or whoever it is, when God, Abraham, when God does a great thing in their lives, he often changes their name. So I'm speculating, but uh, she was Moabitess and she had a Hebrew name. Uh, I find it quite impressive that Ruth is canonized as part of the sacred scripture for two good reasons uh, or interesting reasons. Number one, she was a woman in a male-dominated society. Esther is the only other book in the scriptures named after a woman. And two, even more impressive, is that she's a pagan woman. They hated Moabites, right? Uh, although at the end she ends up following the God of the Jews. Now the setting in uh, Ruth is, uh, beginning of chapter 1, is from really Bethlehem to Moab, which is east of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites are descendants of Lot. If you remember, that's Abraham's nephew. Uh, and Lot had an unusual... Uh, let's say he was, his daughters got him drunk and there was through an incestuous relationship, the Moabitess uh, people were, were kind of, you know, came to be. What we're going to see in this book is the concept of the Goel or the kinsman redeemer. Uh, we're going to see that it's a term we become very familiar with and that that is a type of Christ. So, but without further ado, let's jump in. Chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, uh, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So pretty tragic. Story starts out pretty rough. Personal hardships. Uh, if you know anyone who's outlived their children... Uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It's bad enough she lost two of her children, but she lost her husband too. So you see a lot of tragedy in this woman's life. Now, what's interesting is there was a famine in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. I know that there's some noise somewhere. I don't know where it's coming from. Smoke, that's great. So why don't we just shut, shut that off so that the place doesn't burn down? That would be great. <laughs> okay, let's move on. 
we know that famines, in, especially in these Old Testament times, were um, often sent by God because of national sin. But we also see compromise. We see a Jewish family going to live in pagan Moab instead of putting their lives in the Lord's hands. Elimelech's sons take Moabite wives, which is forbidden in the Old Testament. Okay? So Naomi has a husband, Elimelech. He dies in Moab, as does Malon and Chilion. The only ones left are Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Okay, verse 6. This is where it starts to heat up here. If it gets really bad, we'll just leave, you know, at this point. Um, but let's keep going, see what happens. <laughs> then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And there they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that there may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much that for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So the next event that happens is they get news in Moab that the famine in Bethlehem is over. So, um, you know, they decide to go back to Bethlehem, or Naomi decides to go back. Now, I find this interesting because Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, basically, um, you know, don't come with me. And there is a, an issue um, of her concern for them, certainly. But why would she want to send them back to pagan Moab, to their gods, so to speak? And she says this, kind of weird. Um, you know, the truth is in Israel, the monotheistic God. A lot of the, 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 the pagans were living in darkness spiritually. But so she says to go back there. It's, it's very possible that she was so dejected that she thought she was bad luck, so to speak. But maybe from her perspective, she also didn't want her fellow Israelites to see the girls coming and ask questions because really her sons weren't supposed to take uh, wives of Moab. Not only is it ex expressly forbidden in the law to take um, certain of the foreigners, but definitely the Moabs were listed as uh, the Moabites were listed. Right? And there's, there's a whole thing in Numbers and, and the thing with uh, Balaam and Balak in Numbers 22, but it goes back a long way. But it's true. Naomi sees herself maybe as if you, if you if were able to interview her, she probably would see herself as someone who had like a storm cloud over her head. You know, she's like, everything I touch is bad luck. I don't know what she would say. But certainly she looks at herself in a negative light. But we see that God uses Naomi and the bad situations for his glory in the end. And once we get to the end of the book, we can see that Naomi's perspective now, eternally, she sees what good God has done through her life. And, you know, I would, I would say this. Is it just limited to the Old Testament? Is it limited to, you know, the biblical characters, the people we read about? 
What about us? You know, what about some of us that are going through some hard times? Sometimes when there's a tragedy or things aren't going right, we have a tendency to see ourselves like that. You know, at sometimes, you know, like Naomi. But I would say this, and some of us may even think that uh, God can't use me. Uh, it's just hopeless. I've made some bad choices in my life. But I would just say, if you look at this situation, um, you know, God, if God can do it with Naomi, he can do it with anyone. So let me just play with this a little bit. If the Jewish family, you know, Naomi and Elimelech would have just stayed in Bethlehem, right, and trusted the Lord, maybe the outcome would have been different all around. And let me finish it, and then I'll come back to wh where I'm at here. In other words, it, the famine was lifted after a few years, and Naomi hears about it and goes back, but we don't know how long it's been lifted by the time she hears about it. It is possible if Naomi and Elimelech stayed in Bethlehem, maybe he wouldn't have died and the sons wouldn't have died. We don't know how they died. It could have been something indigenous to Moab that killed them. You know, we don't know. It could have been, uh, they could have fallen upon thieves or robbers. We don't know. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that. So this is really a picture, if you look at Naomi and Elimelech, this is a, a picture of believers who, they're just constantly on the run. They're just going to and fro. They're going here, they're going there. They don't stop and take the time to consult with the Lord. You know, they, they see something that looks bad, so boom, they pack up, we're going, to, we're going to Moab. You know, this is the idea that they're doing. Christians who change circumstances all the time instead of changing themselves. Running away instead of waiting on God unstable as they don't put their roots down and end up being where they don't want to be and in a situation that they don't want and actually wonder how the heck they got there in the first place. Right? You'd see that. So it's funny how we could look at the Old Testament and, and, and criticize those characters, but you know what? P people do that today. You know, we, we follow sometimes the same patterns as, as these folks in the Scripture. Now, we may say, well, if they would have stayed, there would be no Ruth. And I would say, well, if God wanted it, Ruth could have sojourned in, uh, in uh, Bethlehem. And you can play with all these what-ifs. And that's the beauty of God's sovereign will. If he wants something to get done, it's going to get done. I'm from New York. My wife is from Philly. And uh, neither one of us really liked Jersey that much. But it was through us both being in New Jersey that we came together. And, you know, the rest is history. And apparently God wanted that to be. But Ruth was going to be in the Messiah's bloodline by hook or by crook. No matter what happened, she was going to be there. And you can, we can really mess with our minds about God's sovereign will and his foreknowledge and really kind of get ourselves twisted up because it's such an infinite thought and we have finite minds and then eventually say, ah, I just want to move on from here. But let me just say this, just to put the, the, the cherry on top, God deals in the present. God doesn't deal in the regrets. So even when we make mistakes, even when we make the, the wrong choices, it's not like all is lost. God can't use me, right? God is not in the what should have happened or that's a tragedy. God is in what could happen, right? <laughs> Leaving Israel and taking Moabite wives was not the best choice, but God turned it around for good. What about your life? Are you concerned that the furnace is going to blow up and we're all going to be stuck in a fire? No, of course. We're going to open the door and run right out. But what do you wish that you could do over? For those who are listening, um, we're having real problems with the furnace and it's starting to smoke a little bit, so we're going to try to get through this. What choices do we make that we think we've ruined our lives? And I would just say this to you. If you're thinking that, forget about it because that type of thinking is destructive, and that's what Satan wants. He wants us to look at our lives and to, to look at the mistakes, to look at the bad choices, to look at the sin and say, God can't use you. 
If he can get everyone to think that way, then God won't be able to use anybody. So we have to stop that, that type of, of spiral uh, thinking. You know, it's destructive and it's oppressive. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. So really, if you look at Ruth, this young Moabitess woman, all right, she sacrifices everything. Right? She sacrifices the people she knows. She sacrifices her comfort zones to go with her mother-in-law and go into a land that's foreign for, to her. And this, what we see about Ruth is she's a woman of great faith. And it's funny because even in the New Testament, Jesus would see the centurion and certain unbelievers, Gentiles, and they had such incredible faith. And he said, oh, I haven't found this much faith in Israel. So it's funny how sometimes the unbelievers uh, who coming to the Lord will really shame some of us believers at times. You know, we get maybe too comfortable where we're at. But incidentally, verse 15, she says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her gods, go after her. You know, again, the false gods bring damnation. Why would she say that? This kind of weirdness will always come from a believer who's not submitted to God. When we're not submitted to God, we don't have the mind of Christ, and we don't have the mind of Christ. We're not thinking in the spiritual. We, rev we revert back to the natural, unfortunately. Even today, a believer may say odd things. I'm, well, I'm a Christian too, and they may just say be just odd things, right? We talked Sunday about the resurrection, how it's negotiable in the United States how a good percentage of so-called Christians and even ministers are saying, you know, that's, that's negotiable. We, we don't have to be really committed to that. That's weird, okay? That's not being submitted to God, right? They may be very secretive about their life. They may maintain a basic Christianity but never get involved, keep others at a distance, uh, maybe for fear that the light may shine on them, slinking in the shadows, right? We see... Naomi, but the good news is, listen, I don't want to beat up Naomi too much because we'll see that she, she completely makes a changeover. Uh, chapter 2 is really a great uh, apex or a turning point uh, in this chapter that I really enjoyed studying. So verses 16 and 17, she says, Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God my God. These are two of the most powerful verses in Scripture, especially spoken by a foreign woman right? She forsakes her nationality in here. She forsakes her people. She forsakes her geographical home, her comfort zone. She forsakes her gods and even wishes to be buried in Israel, right? The Lord do so to me. She calls upon the Lord and claims the God of Israel as her God, right? This is, this is a, a fantastic woman, right? You see why, why um, she was used of God. And Ruth is a picture of a believer, Right? Because she believes in the Lord, cutting off everything in their lives to become consecrated to God. Right? Moab is a picture of the world and the picture of the flesh. And believers have varying degrees of how much of the world they still hold on to. We all have still, uh, we, we have a dual nature now. We're spiritual, but we're also tied to the flesh. And sometimes we revert back to the flesh. 
So, but Ruth is a picture of a believer cutting off everything in the world, completely going forward to consecrate themselves to God. You know, I, I was at a, a believer's house. <clears throat> None of you know the story, so I can say this. And uh, I was with my son, and something was on TV. It was um, prime time. It was a sitcom. And uh, <clears throat> it was Charlie Sheen was in it. And here's a guy who, according to the something I read a month ago, claims to be born again. And he's, it, it's, let's just say that he's there and all these women are there and they're scantily dressed and there's sexual innuendo. And I said to the person who claims to be Christian, I said, do me a favor, will you please shut that off? I don't want Josiah to see that, you know? And that's what I asked him to do. Ruth's example should put to shame the compromising Christian. Sometimes we still involve in, and in the privacy of our own homes, we still engage in things that we shouldn't do. And even when somebody comes over, we're not ashamed of it. Shame can be a good thing sometimes, right? And I would just say this, gone are the days of innocence. Everything on TV now has to do with sex and other vulgarities. I mean, I remember, was it, we, the Wizard of Oz was on one night, and we're like, oh boy, how, how wholesome this was, you know? Oh, to see the wizard, you know, they didn't curse, there was no sexuality, there was no, you know what I'm saying? So it's a shame. And I'm not a prude, but my attitude is keep it in the bedroom. I don't want to start explaining things to my son before I'm ready to explain things to my son. You know, I just don't want to see it. I don't want it invading him. I want to preserve his innocence. Okay? So we have Ruth, and we have Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah. <laughs> it's, uh, okay? She's a picture of the unbeliever who gets so close to the kingdom, but just can't make a break from the world. Orpah is so close, right? She... She leaves. I mean, it takes just a little bit of coaxing, and she goes back to Moab. You know, she's sad that there's going to be a break in fellowship, but maybe part of her is even relieved that, you know, she doesn't have to leave everything she knew like her, her sister-in-law did, a fellow Moabitess. So she's a picture of someone who gets so close to the kingdom but just can't make that break and, and go for it. And you know what? You see that, and it's tough. And we keep praying for those types of people to come to the Lord. Verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Again, so we can see that Naomi believes that God is looking disfavorably and maybe even punishing her. And you can see that today. Something tragic happens to a believer, and, you know, it's human nature. You feel bad. You feel like, where's God? Uh, it, this is a tragedy. Um, look at Job's friends. You know, they, they kind of got caught up in that, too. But telling them, you must have done something wrong. God's looking disfavorably on you. Now, listen, sometimes we are punished. Bible says in Hebrews that if God loves us, he will discipline us. But sometimes it's not true. You know, every time something bad happens, we can't look at it as, oh, God's mad at me. You know, he's got his thumb ready to press me. Other times we cry out and complain to God. We blame him. Why did you do that? I mean, that was, Lord, that was, that was out of bounds. I mean, this is something I just can't take. I mean, there was already this and this going on, but now that, I mean, that's just not fair, right? <laughs> Sometimes we're self-deceived. Sometimes we do things and we become a victim of our own choices and not him. And other times it just happens. It's the result of living in a fallen world. And we've talked that, about that from the pulpit 
uh, basically when trials happen. There's really a, a variety of ways or reasons, or maybe it's just for no reason. Maybe it's just, like I said, a result of living in a fallen world. We don't know what happened to her family. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, this is something interesting. Verse 21. Listen to her words. Naomi says this, I went out full from Bethlehem to Moab, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? My name is no longer Naomi. You have to understand the wording here. The word, the word Naomi in the Hebrew means pleasant. The word Mara in the Hebrew means bitter. So she, gives, she says, no longer is my name pleasant. Now my name is bitter. You can start calling me bitter from now on, right? Maybe it's the Lord's fault. I went out full and the Lord me, brought me back empty. Does anybody see what's wrong with this? Actually, the way she's looking at it is the reverse of reality. She actually went out empty. She went out in disbelief. She went out not trusting the Lord. She went out, and, and her husband, okay, the, the leader of the home, went out in a lack of faith. They went out to an ungodly nation. They really went out empty. It's the reverse. And they came, she came back full. She came back to the promised land. She came back to the God of the Israelites. She came back to the, to the, the priestly system. She came back with Ruth, who was a treasure trove, as, she'll, as we'll find out. As we continue to go through this, we'll see that she realizes her daughter-in-law is, 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 is gold that she didn't know she had. So it's really the reverse of what she's saying. And self-deception can be common among believers. Theology becomes governed by emotions and life circumstances instead of the timeless truths of God's word and his character. But we'll see later at Naomi's change of heart. It's really a good story all around in the end. Last verse. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. All right, here's where it gets good. Chapter 1 leaves, leaves us off with Ruth and Naomi in Bethlehem at the barley harvest. The barley harvest was in spring, and the children of Israel certainly could express joy over God's provisions. Now, for even more, when you do without and you see loss and then you are, you know, it, you're refilled, you're really appreciative than to always be taken care of. You don't really see the good things in your life. The children of Israel had a famine, and God relieved the famine. All the, I mean, listen, back then, you prayed for rain, and if the rain didn't come, the crops dried up, and you didn't eat. So it was serious. So now, not only is the, is the famine over, but now there's new provisions. It's a picture of optimism, a picture of new beginnings, right? Now, I would say this, that if you look at um, Naomi and Ruth, you can see two types of people in the world. And of course, there's some variations, and we go back and forth at times. But Naomi, yes, bad things happened in her life. But she seems to be a pessimist. She can't see any good. Everything is doom and gloom. She even changes her name, right? You look at Ruth. Well, bad things also happen to her. Okay, we can't take that away from Ruth. But she's more of an optimist. Now, optimism for the sake of optimism is foolishness. Just like faith for the sake of faith is foolish. It has to be predicated upon something. It has to be, there has to be a foundation that's undergirding it. Her, optimin, or her optimism is predicated upon her strong faith in God. So that's her foundation, and that's where her optimism comes from. She forsakes her whole way of life in Moab to trust God and see what the future will hold. And as we'll see, Ruth's faith pays off in the end, and as believers, Ruth is a good example for us to do the same. Let's pray.